Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We are in a series right now that is uh, the second part of a two-part series. So really quickly, if you're new with us, last spring we started to talk through the first part of the book of Acts. This is a moment, it's actually the second of Luke's writing. He first wrote the gospel according to Luke, the story of Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry, where all roads were going towards Jerusalem, this culminating moment of the crucified and risen Lord. And then his second work is the book of Acts, and we go out from Jerusalem. You see the Holy Spirit coming, and this risen Lord now has ushered a new way for the community of believers to be in life together. So the first part, we talked about what it looked like as they were becoming the church. Here they were, this new thing, this new koinonia fellowship, and what was going on? What marked their community and their koinonia life together? And we started to see that as they were becoming the church, we saw certain marks on their community that the Holy Spirit was ushering in for them as the early church. We're now in part two, and we're talking about now that this has been forming, what does it look like being the Missio Day? And this is not me doing a play on our name or anything. This was the name for this Missio Day means mission of God. This is a highly missional book of what's going on. They're God's mission not only as the presence of God through the Holy Spirit in their fellowship together, but also the mission to spread this good news and invite others in. And so that's what we're looking at. What does it look like to live out this new identity and this new mission as the changing people of God? So we're going to lean into the story where Aaron uh, just read out of Acts 15. So remember that up until now, we've been hearing them preach the good news, especially in synagogues, right? Because they were telling the Jewish nation, this is the continuation of the story. This is what we've been waiting for, Jesus as Messiah. And so they were going around and we hear that both Jews and non-Jewish people are believing this good news and coming to faith. And so this focus has been preaching, and it will continue to be so, but now we start to see that uh, some dis a dispute has come up within the fellowship, within what we would call the church. They would call the fellowship at this point. Uh, a dispute has come up. So before we are looking at um, communications outside of the community of believers, trying to bring people in, but now we're looking really into the fellowship here we are in life together, and we come up with this big question mark. Why all the talk about circumcision? Andy warned me I'm already going to have a lot of people squirming. We just have to get over it. It's an important thing, and we need to talk about it, because circumcision was an important part of the Jewish identity. And here's the deal. It goes all the way back to Genesis 17. God gives this amazing promise to this one guy, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah, and says, I will be your God. You will be my people. You're gonna, I'm paraphrasing. You're gonna stand out among all the nations because of certain laws that I've placed on you that will make you stand out among all the people. And one of the marks of the covenant is that every male among you will be circumcised at eight days of age. Is it eight? Is it seven? Eight, okay, sorry. Um, see, so you guys know about circumcision. Yes, this is the mark of the covenant, and so it's really important. I find it fascinating that earlier in the book of Acts, we hear the recorded sermon or preaching of Stephen right before he's stoned to death. And this is such a big deal mark of the identity that 
he's using it within his preaching to explain what was happening as the fulfillment of God's promise. He says, remember people, God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at that time. And he goes on to say, and then Abraham circumcised Isaac, Isaac circumcised Jacob, Jacob circumcised his 12 sons as the 12 tribes of Israel. He's using this mark. It's such an important cultural mark that I just need us to like, just understand that culturally it's just a, an important mark, so much so that Stephen uses his precious little time to emphasize it. It was a big deal to the national identity of God's chosen people. So now we have faithful Jews who now believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they're wondering, do we need, as we are now living in the fulfillment of Old Testament promise, do we need these new people who are coming to faith to participate in this law, including circumcision. So remember, in the early church, this is not a new religion. This is a continuation of Old Testament and Jewish promises that God had made to his nation of Israel. So we can't oversimplify when we think about the law. I think churches, modern churches sometimes tend to oversimplify. They tell a story that sounds something like this. Well, law was the Old Testament way of works and now we live in New Testament grace because of Jesus. I believe that's an oversimplification. This is one story. And if you think about it like this, God's story all along has been covered in grace. And the Jewish people knew that. The Abrahamic covenant, that promise that I just referred to from Genesis 17, that's swimming in grace. Abraham didn't deserve, he hadn't done something so special as to deserve to be the father of this covenant with the whole people, right? It was all grace. Grace and law were together. These were not, need to look at like separate things. Mosaic covenant, when uh, God gave the actual tablets to Moses with the law, remember the 10 commandments, we saw that at the same time that he was handing law, he was also instructing on sacrifice, atonement, God's presence, priests, he talks all about that. Why? Because I'm handing you a law to mark you, but I know it's just too hard to keep up. Let's talk about how we will keep us in right relationship, but also have you marked by this law. And so it was a big, uh, it is an absolute truth that the Old Testament is also swimming in grace. So we can't just look at the conversation around circumcision and the other uh, pieces of the law and call it just, oh, well, that's silly legalism. Don't we know so much more now? It's not that. It's way oversimplified, in my opinion. So as a marked, set-apart people, circumcision, covenant thinking, it would seem necessary as they looked at their new koinonia fellowship to say, well, these people coming in must need to bear this shared mark that we bear. We otherwise, this is the thing, it's not just that the individuals are marked. Because if they aren't marked with the same covenant mark of the Jewish people, the Jewish believers can't fellowship with the Gentiles. This is more than individualistic rule following. This is all about how to fellowship together. We'll talk a little bit more about it. So this isn't like you need to do something as an initiation into our club. It's not that. They're saying, wait, we can't fellowship with you. It's in our rules that we can't do that. So the sharing of common meals, which would include the Lord's Supper, but also just like we do in the first part of our community nights, being together around the table, the Jewish people, as they, that, that was central, right, to this forming Christian, what we would now call Christian community. 
was fellowship, including the Lord's table, right? It expressed common identity and commitment to one another and shared allegiance to Christ. But the Jews of antiquity were, would be hesitant to share many meals with non-Jews because, because table fellowship creates such strong bonds. And they were wary of creating such strong bonds with non-Jews, with pagans. So it's not like it is for us today. How much law needs to be obeyed for me to be a good Christian? It's not that. It was how much law must be obeyed to live together in fellowship. How, do, how can we live together amidst this nation of Israel now as Gentile believers? So it was a way of, of um, Gentile Christians fellowshipping with Jewish Christians without violating the conscience of, conscience of the second group. Does that make sense? It's a fellowship question. So we need to understand a little bit more what this debate is about in Acts 15. So remember, when, when we hear the word Gentile, that means a non-Jewish person. And in their culture, that meant some form of being pagan. I don't think I've ever heard any story of an atheist in that culture. It, you, your piety was connected to how many gods, lowercase g, how many gods you worshiped. And, and which ones you did. Um, but you talked about it last week. It, it, it even divinity to the emperor, right? D divinity was assigned to the emperor. So like, you, you believed in some kind of divine. That wasn't the question. It was like more which divine. And so this Gentile culture that they've been living in up until the moment they believed is just swimming in gods, lowercase g, swimming in gods. We talked last week about idolatry. It was such a huge deal this idolatry. And so if we now are confessing one true God, Israel had rules in place, the law, to protect them from pagan influence and the temptation to wander. Because that was what the culture all around them was calling to, was to many, many gods to be worshipped. So it wasn't a snobby thing, it was a protective thing to mark their unique identity as God's chosen people. And so in this moment, we can't look at this and say, well, there's this legalistic group. No, these are well-meaning Jewish Christians saying, we've got to get this fellowship thing right. And so they question how the church can still regard itself as the continuation of the story of Israel if it disregards the commandments about circumcision that are so important to their identity. So we can't just make it surface like legalism versus grace. That just doesn't work. Gentiles have been grafted into the story. So they're saying, oh my gosh, this is already a big deal. You're in our story now. Okay, how are we gonna make this work? I think you need to come and become Jew like us to continue on in this story. But the church cannot make a test of fellowship what God does not make a condition of salvation. I'll say that again. The church cannot take a test, make a test of fellowship what God does not make a condition of salvation. So the disciples are gathered together to address this really important question, and they needed to come, to come to a place of agreement. So we engage a little bit first with the debate in chapter 15. We don't hear the opposite side of the debate recorded here, but we know it happened because we know that... Um, also, we can observe here that it's the Jews who are gathering to discuss this. We don't hear from any Gentile believers. We hear from Jewish believers having this debate, at least not recorded. So we see the men of Judea, so Jewish men, were teaching this, you need to get circumcised. And Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. So even though we don't have the other side of the debate listed, 
We know it was going on, and it was a very real debate. And this is a section that we now call the Jerusalem Council. So in verse 6, the apostles and elders met together to resolve the issue at the meeting after a long discussion. So again, we don't know um, both sides, what's here, how long, etc. But you'll notice this, at different stages of this chapter, different groups are mentioned. Sometimes it's the whole church. Sometimes it's the apostles and uh, elders talking. So you get the sense, like this went on a long time, probably multiple sessions. We don't know how much time passed, but there was debate Definitely debate. And so we hear Peter says, God knows people's hearts. He confirms, confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. Remember, Peter, earlier in this book, had that moment where he had a vision where God brought down this blanket full of food that would have been unkosher, unclean. And, and he says, eat, Peter. And Peter says, I never touch that. I'm, I'm too good of a Jew. I know better. God said it three times. And then Peter was like, okay, something's going on. And he was sent to Cornelius's house, a pagan, a Gentile man. And they, the Holy Spirit comes upon the whole house after he preaches the good news. They believe Peter's lived this lesson already. He hasn't had this exact debate. But like he, when he speaks, remember what he has recently encountered in his own living witness, in his own life. So that is Peter. So he's saying, like, I know this. God has done this thing. He's cleansed their hearts because I met Cornelius and I saw it happen. Then Paul and Barnabas speak up. And what they do, we don't hear all their words, but what he hears, like, they testify. And I love that. So we've got Peter's living experience, lived experience, and then we've got Paul and Barnabas just testifying to what has already happened. They're not pulling up biblical scholars, Old Testament scholars. They're not pulling up um, anything else. They're just saying, here's what I saw. It's already happening, and that living witness matters. Look what's happening with the Gentiles. The proof is one in what we've already seen the Holy Spirit doing. Jennings, in his uh, commentary, said that this Holy Spirit testimony is truth embodied in flesh. I love that definition. The testimony like that is, I'm gonna speak truth because the embodied thing I saw happened, truth embodied in flesh is the testimony that they give. It's not carefully crafted theology. It's a testimony to what Holy Spirit is doing. Side note, um, in the stories of Jesus, it's the same for us. What God, Jesus, the witnesses went on and testified about what Jesus had done. That's how the good news spread. It's the same way for us now. Some of you, if you grew up in churches, maybe um, have heard of like the Romans road or like what's the right path of things to say to get people to understand the truth of Jesus. And I would say that's lovely, but it's also really good to just say, you know what God did? Do you know what Jesus has done in my life? Truth embodied in flesh, living testimony is so powerful still today. Okay, so then after Paul and Barnabas, James speaks up. He links this to Old Testament prophecy from Amos. I'm not quite clear how it is that James is the one who seems to have the final word at this council, but in whatever way, the deliberation is ends and he is coming to an end. He speaks up and says, this is the fulfillment, and let me get my Bible and read the um, scripture that he leans in on. So what we have here is we have testimony, and then we have scripture. Remember, this is rooted in holy, authoritative scripture. So let me find it in... Acts 15, this is the portion. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. As it is written, afterward I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it. 
so that the rest of humanity, read Gentiles, non-Jews, might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, he who made these things known so long ago. And then he goes on, James goes on to say this, and so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. And so this is towards the end of the debate, right? And he's saying, okay, we have a decision. Instead, he goes on, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood, restrain from those things. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. So here's this moment where James says, here's the decision, and then afterwards we read on, they send that letter to the different communities, and, and we hear there is great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. And I think that what we hear here is not like a glad of the encouraging message, like, few. I don't have to do that. That didn't really sound like a lot of fun, which it might be also a little bit true, but it's broader than that. They're saying, few Jews and Gentiles are truly united into the same family. There is great joy at that news. And so, wait a minute, though. Did you guys catch that weird twist? It was like, you don't have to get circumcised, but here's what you need to not do instead. You need to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, and from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. Hold up. You just took away that you had to follow this certain big deal rule, and now you just threw in these random ones that we've not been emphasizing anywhere else. Is this just like a swap out? Have you randomly just picked new restrictions? So these things are not just new Jewish legalism. We need to put them back again in context. What are these new restrictions and why have they suddenly come into play in the Jerusalem Council's final decision? So here's what's going on here. Gentle, excuse me, Gentile Christians may remain Gentiles, but they cannot remain idolaters. They cannot remain people who worship other gods. And remember the culture that they've been raised up in and what it is that they've been doing before knowing Jesus as Lord. So this isn't a compromise. It's a swapping out the circumcision bit. You don't need to fall to that, but you have to stop your association with your previous gods and worship of idols. That's what this part is getting at. So these elements serve uh, not only to show the religious traditions from which Gentiles were coming, so we can read into here, like, these were, must have been common practices in their old way of life, but it still is saying, like, there still is very real danger of polytheism, even for Gentile believers, because they've been able to worship a whole bunch of gods. And so this is cool. I can now worship Jesus as Lord. There's one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean I have to stop worshiping other gods too. And this is their way to say, we need to help you to get out of that, um, those patterns. And these are ways to help. These are things that their communities would have commonly engaged in. And the Jewish Christians are saying, let us help you no longer swim in those waters. So remember last week we talked about this. Luke knows and assumes and just confirms that idolatry is absolutely normal in the early church social context. Ours look a little different, like we talked about, but Christians still need awareness. And so James's instructions, if we, for those of you who were here last week, we talked about the false god we worship, you know, for example, um, uh, money, uh, financial stability, right? Um, if that's a god, one of your 
uh, high places, your Asher polls might be um, a constant obsessive checking of the stock market to see how your bank account, like viewing it a lot. And then the resulting vice would be greed, right? So what they're doing is they're knocking down the Asher poll that thing we talked about last week. They're saying, you can knock this stuff down and it will help you no longer swim in the cultural narrative of false gods. Uh, sexual immorality, by the way, in this list falls into a pagan practice. It's talking about uh, most likely referring to, there, there was a, a temple prostitution practice that was pretty common. Um, but so that, that's, it's all within that pagan life together. I would say this, you know, Christians are called to chastity and the surrounding culture just in general didn't emphasize that. I read one time that in that culture, in that time, you had, uh, you had intimacy within marriage for procreation and intimacy outside of marriage for recreation. It was just normative in that culture. Chastity, either in of abstaining outside of marriage or faithfulness within marriage was not a thing. Fidelity in marriage wasn't as strongly, it wasn't a thing. Um, so that's the culture they're in. So the idea is these aren't arbitrary prohibitions or legalism. It's just him saying there are simply things that are incongruent with being a Christian. You can't engage in pagan practices. It's, it's not that anything is beyond forgiveness. Please hear that. There is nothing beyond the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you can't claim that Jesus is Lord and that Caesar is without us knowing that you've, something hasn't been grasped. You've, you've missed something here. Uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that's it. Anything else doesn't work. And so these practices of, of eating the meat that, of, that's been sacrificed, you would, it would be your Asher pole and you could fall back. So let's go away from the circumcision conversation for a moment. Because what we want to be doing in this series is not just learning about stuff, but seeing what it looks like to be formed by looking at what they were doing as they were being the Missio Dei, the church, the mission of God. What were they doing? So today what we pull out of this text is what happens when church disagrees within herself. Believers within church disagree. And it's a reality. It's just a true mark of messy, holy, faithful, committed life together. And so we're going to talk just a little bit about what it is that church sometimes disagrees on, just so we can know um, how this works. So forgive me a second. This is going to sound like history class. And when I had to take my first history class, and I was, it was not my favorite, dates and memorizing and tests, I would much, much rather write papers. But as we learned this church history, I realized this is our story. This is, we were built on this foundation, and we should know some of this. So we're gonna talk for a minute, first of all, about what are considered essentials and non-essentials. What do we mean when we say we're a Christian? And so we have this time way in the beginning, like this kind of time and beyond of when Acts was um, being recorded, when people were saying, yes, I believe in Jesus, but they were working out what they even meant when they say that. We're 1,900 years past some of this stuff getting worked out, and so we can just assume that we know some of this base thing. For example, that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there was stuff like that that had to get debated and worked out. I think about this analogy. When people at this time were saying, hey, I'm a Christian, it did, they didn't all know the same stuff. How is it that Jesus was fully human and fully divine? That was a big one that caused a lot of what people would later call heresies, means false teaching, because they were trying to fit. maybe he's just a man who sometimes gets the, God goes through him in holy miracle moments, but the rest of the time he's just fully a man. He's just, all of this, they were like, no, 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 no. 
that's not right. But they had to do this work in council, and it was a lot of work. I think back to this moment, um, probably like 20 some years ago, I, uh, I used to work in advertising, and I was coming home at the end of my nine to five day. I was driving home, and somebody ran a red light and T-boned me. And I was okay, my car was not. I pushed me into a pole, and uh, a couple other people got out of their cars. All of us were in rush hour, right? Going home after work. We were all exhausted. They took me into a little corner. I was very shaken. And they took me into this little corner bar and got me a glass of water and these strangers. So we have four strangers in the room sipping water and trying to calm Melissa down from having the shakes. And I was feeling guilty because I had inconvenienced all of them that they were wanting to go home and see their families. And so I said to them, I was like, oh my gosh, you guys, thank you so much. You don't, you don't have to stay. We'll wait here for the police, this guy and I, and, and it's fine. You don't have to stay. Like, it's clear what happened. And the other guy was like, uh, what do you mean it's clear? You started in before it turned green, and I already had the momentum, it's true. It's like, you started in, I still had yellow. And I was like, where were you? Your light was red, I was fully green, and I realized I needed plurality of people. I thought we all saw the same event, and that's what was happening here. Wait, we all just saw the same event, but what we really were perceiving happened might look a little different. We have to decide what do we mean when we say, that we are Christian, that triune God is triune God, that Jesus is Lord. What do we mean? So go back 1,900 years ago, and you start to see these heresies where people who are sitting there, like sitting around watching this one moment that happened, and all of them are saying, yeah, but it means a different thing. We had to gather councils together, and we ended up uh, with a council of Nicaea. Um, we have, um, I, I Sam was really a good sport this morning. I had this idea way last minute. We have creeds in this faith. These are the essentials. And we printed some out for you guys. Here's the deal. The Council of Nicaea gathered together, an ecumenical council that got together and said, we've got to decide what does that mean when you say you're Christian. Later, the Apostles' Creed on the other side of this. These are creeds of essential elements of the Christian faith. This is what it means. But these weren't written yet when this was going on. And so, so much was still being worked out. Um, so these things are what the church and its history have considered to be essential. I encourage you to take these when we come up and take communion because you should read these and hear, by the way, the Apostles' Creed, maybe both of them, say the Holy Catholic Church. That's a lowercase c. It's not talking about Catholic versus prominent, uh, Protestant. It's talking about uh, universal. There's one universal church. Okay, so what happened to that? Because we sure know that there's not one universal denomination anymore, right? And so later we find ourselves in the non-essentials. That doesn't mean not important. It meant the not foundational to Christian faith. Christianity means we believe these things. There's a whole lot of things we can believe different stuff about and still be a Christian church. And so we found this map when I was, uh, you don't have to memorize this, don't worry, but what this shows is how stuff started to go sideways. Way up at the top, we've got Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox churches uh, breaking off from one another and saying there's some foundational stuff that we're not in agreement with. But then we have the Reformation where suddenly the, uh, Martin Luther comes up against the Catholic Church and actually wants to reform her and say, I see some things that seem wrong, abuses of power or things like, I want to reform you. Let's change these things. But what happened, of course, was a split. So now we have Protestants and Catholics. Well, then all those Protestants started to say things like, wait, 
I think communion actually means this, and it's, it's, that, it's the real presence, or it's the symbolic presence. We split. And then some say, I don't think we should be baptizing our infants. I think we should wait till somebody can make their own choice. We split. And so what I want you to see here, my point in this, is not to see a fractured family tree. I want you to see Yes, this is the messy, broken, holy witness of a faithful group of people trying to figure out what it means to be the church faithfully. And so I don't know about your family tree. Mine's got some weird twists and turns in it. This is family story. And our family tree has some things in the non-essentials where they are Christian churches believing different things. And what I hear in these moments or what I want to emphasize is that when the church disagrees, that, that we still can be faithful to the essentials. And we still can be faithful to each other as church, but there's some really passionate things that people have different ideas on. Side note, our statement of faith is based on these creeds. That's what we would call at Missio Dei, the essentials. And then we have positions on what we would call non-essentials. If you're interested in hearing those, we have an MD 101. It's the class where we talk about like our own theology, our history, our structure, all that. Coming up on October 20th at Community Night. I encourage you to go. The point is not today to teach on doctrine. It's to teach about how do we go forward when the church disagrees within herself. There's a lot of talk about grace and works. What is, what is it that is just covered in grace and what is it that we need to do to still be church together? And in this moment in Acts 15, they know if they impose a law as a means of salvation, they will doom the Gentiles to failure just as Israel couldn't keep the covenant in and of herself as a nation, right? We, this, we can't have anything be essential to salvation except saying that Jesus Christ is Lord. So a quick observation, just because in our life together, there will be disagreements. It's just the truth. So an observation, how did the church resolve disputes when both sides are trying to be faithful and they have passion behind it? and they have different conclusions from their sincere reading of scripture. And so I pull out this, um, this paragraph just to, so you can make some um, observations from this text. They include the interpretation of scripture. That's important. They know their own story as God's spirit is working among them. That's the testimony. They know fundamental principles from the gospel of grace. They've just lived under that. And so they have to press into fundamental principles. They are not meeting behind closed doors, but in transparency with the larger body throughout the process. That's important. They define and limit the problem. So we can't cover all of everything in this council or we're going to be all over the place forever. The exact question is, do Jews need to be circumcised as a mark of being Jews before we can be Jewish Christians together. So Mark, get clear on what the issue is. And then they also know these are the leaders that we've heard. James is the one who has to finally make the word. This is what we're gonna believe. And they know not everybody will be happy. And that's hard as a church leader, but they do what they believe to be right, knowing that some won't like the decision. So why do I pull that out? We're trying to learn. We're gonna disagree sometimes. What do we need to do? Let's look back to the Jerusalem Council and see how to engage faithfully with one another. The decision is not that of the church, but of God. And the story shows these people trying to discern God's will and community together. So the council hears feedback from both groups. And then what carries weight is God's intervention, more so than human response. Because believe me, some faithful Jewish people would not have been thrilled with this answer. They're about to have to go have table fellowship with unmarked people. And so it, it, it's tough. Like, and church still disagrees now. That's why we're talking about all of this right now, right? 
But here, we see it, this is interesting, because right now we might think, oh, phew, the council did it. They made a decision and everything's gonna be okay. But we see right after here, Paul and Barnabas part ways because they disagree. This question there becomes about this gentleman, John Mark, and we see right after this, yay, everyone's got a decision now. We see disagreement right out of the back. It's still gonna happen in their life together. And the thing, Luke doesn't get into what they're disagreeing about. I don't think it's important. It's just a testimony that they still disagree. And by the way, we see in other letters that they, they reconcile in some way later. Paul refers to John Mark multiple times, sending greetings or even asking for him in certain letters. I think that's in 2 Timothy. He asks for him. So, But hey, we've got division right after this decision of a council. So it still does happen. It's a reality of trying to live fellowship life together. But fellowship and the Missio Dei is worth the work. That's what I would say. Even in disagreement, fellowship and continuing the mission of God is clearly worth the work because Paul and Barnabas get in a fight, part ways, and keep on proclaiming the gospel. They don't go bad-mouthing each other or even focusing on what their disagreement was about, the nature of it. That's not what's important. We gotta keep going with this mission of God. And what about this? I just have to point this out, but if you're reading along with us, you might notice this. They've just said... Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. And in the beginning of the very next chapter, it says, Paul has Timothy circumcised. What is up with that? Here's the other thing about when church disagrees, right? Paul knows where they're headed, and he doesn't want anything to get in the way of the message of God spreading. And he knows that if these people, they go to the synagogues and preach, and if Timothy is not marked by the covenant of the Jewish law, these people that they're trying to minister to won't eat with him. So it's not that he's going back on the decision that was just made. He knows that Timothy, in order to be accepted as a messenger of this good news to the Jews, has to have some skin in the game. And I just made a better one than you, Sam. My pun. But it just, literally, here's what happened. I'm gonna tell you guys the truth. I was prepping, and I said, he, he's got to have skin in the game. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't say that in church. That is awful. I didn't mean it like that. And then I told my kids, and they were like, yeah, you got to say it anyway. <laughs> so that's what just happened. But no, seriously, in all seriousness, he needed to not have that mark get in the way. And we hear this later in Paul's teaching again and again, that this whole talk about the law, right? Not just circumcision. It also was food law, holy days. We hear um, Paul so he's just said, Timothy, I think you need to get circumcised. But we read in Galatians 5, listen to Paul's language about this. If any, for in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. I wish those, verse 12, who have given you a different message would castrate themselves. He basically is going on, he says like, just go all the way then if you're teaching this false message. This is how important it is to Paul. He gives passionate teaching against this, but he doesn't want that stuff to get in the way for anyone else. That's why he still has him circumcised. I would read this to you too, out of Romans 14. Here it is about the food laws. And this is the same thing again. Which part are we reading? 14 to 19, let me find it. I know I'm convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat, but if someone believes it's wrong, then for that person it is wrong. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you're not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died then you'll not be criticized for doing something you believe is good. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. So then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. What he's saying here is like, you know it's okay to not be circumcised, to eat whatever food, to uh, not celebrate the new moon festival. You know that's okay, but if it's gonna get in the way of somebody else knowing Jesus Christ, then that's the more important thing. Give up, lay down your freedom for the other. That's an act of, of laying ourselves down for somebody else. So a lot of ink has been spilled over the relationship of law and grace, law and faith, right? This whole thing, it's tricky, and I'm not gonna get in, I can't, I can't solve it all right now. Here's what I'm gonna say for now. The law is not bad. It's God's gift of grace, and faithful chosen Jews would have seen it as that. They were not being silly legalists. It was a good thing. It was seen as God's grace upon them. It's just that people had added to it. And Jesus, as Jesus would say, they'd gone beyond the heart of the law to adding letters to the law and making it just impossible to live out. Jesus himself said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So when Paul and the other apostles are talking about all this stuff, food, circumcision, holy days, all of that, they are trying to remind us, like, it's okay. These markers of identity are beautiful. It's what makes us set apart, marks of grace and love. But the cultural weight is hard for us to feel about this circumcision. He's saying, like, but now Jesus Christ is the thing that gives the grace overall. So these laws are not bad. It's all, we hear this passion coming in the debate for sure, but we can't be bound to that because Jesus has made a new path of right relationship. The marks of the law won't save us anymore. Jesus saves us. It's done in Jesus. So the thing that I wanna point out, first of all, there's just the teaching, right? We need to say, church is gonna disagree. You saw our twisted family tree. It's gonna happen. And so what do we do? We learn a lot from the Jerusalem Council, but here's where I want us to observe something really important in this text. This whole section and the conversation around law was not about individual salvation. Did you see that? It wasn't about individual salvation. It was about community life together. That's what was important. That's what they were pressing into. It concerns the frame within which the communities of God's people are gonna operate in the wake of the gift of grace. It's talking about life together. And that's what I want us to observe because what this early church is learning is something that we still could stand to repeat as the church, capital C Church, all churches in this world to say, wait a minute, church involves radical inclusivity that says we now are a new us because you are here in our fellowship, in our koinonia. And if you are here, whatever difference there is, proclaiming Jesus as Lord, we are now a new us because of you and you and you and you together. We're a new us now. And we get to be that together in our koinonia fellowship. So what might seem like a small dispute over circumcision determined actually the ways that the Jesus movement would be able to adapt culturally as it crossed ethnic boundaries. There's a much bigger story than law happening here or legalism debate happening here. So the question for us, for the church, all church, are we like the Judean men talked about here? Are we tempted to control the unknown and domesticate difference? Jennings asked that question and I think it's good, Willie Jennings. Do we want when something's different to control it if we don't know about it? Do we wanna domesticate difference? Or do we wanna be a place where we say, you guys, Jesus is king, and he died for you and you, and if you and I don't agree on some stuff, and if you have a different story than I do, I don't need to domesticate your story. 
I don't need to clean it up so it looks a certain way before you come. Come into the messy, holy witness of the body of Christ together. Come exactly as you are because of Jesus. And let us be a new us because we're here together now. Can we fellowship at a table with you, even though your past and your cultural difference is not only okay, but it's blessed. That difference that we bear in our bodies and in our stories, it's blessed. And so for us today, that means living into a fellowship, a koinonia, participation fellowship of hospitality. And that takes Christ and the Bible and the action of the Spirit to be radically inclusive in their living witness, their testimony. And we want to live into that. This is a good news for everyone. So we as a church can set aside comfort or control to make space for radical inclusivity. Become a new us because you and you and you are a part of us now. And we're all covered with the blood of Jesus and we can do the messy stuff in our life together. We can disagree in our life together and still have that, that lordship of Jesus over all and be radically inclusive, radically hospitable. And I want to see that. We collectively have talked about this in different groups and councils. We want that to be a mark of this Missio Day. We want that to be a mark of us as we see it lived out in the reality of the early church. So we want to be a people who see radical inclusivity in fellowship life together and respond in kind. God, I pray for us as a group of people that we see either in our relationships or in the news a lot, um, that, that broken, gnarly tree of the history of the church and how we've allowed disagreements to... They really hurt. It's the, real, it's the real living truth. So God, let us learn to be a people who can um, just hold, hold on to what is essential and allow grace over difference and just allow ourselves to just follow after you in truth and in spirit and, and with passion and conviction, but um, just also allow space that we're stepping into a story that, yes, is ancient, but is also just being lived out in very real ways right here at 1242 West Addison this morning. Lean into that, that family tree and say, we want to be part of the living witness of the holy, broken, messy church as we testify, Jesus, to your grace. Help us to live that out in ways that honor you and the work you do in and among us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.